0: You're listening to the Winning Teams Podcast, presented by Jet Dental, the premier pop up dental clinic for workplaces nationwide. Now, here's your
1: host, Jordan Smith. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Winning Teams Podcast. This is the first episode of season three, and we're excited to be joined by Leo Batari. And Leo is an award winning author, keynote speaker, workshop facilitator, and podcaster. He is the founder and managing partner of Purenovation LLC, and co-founder of The One Advantage. Leo serves as an instructor for Rutgers University, and he's an opinion columnist and external advisory board member for CEO World Magazine. With a focus on peer advisory groups in the workplace, Leo is passionate about helping others build successful teams. Leo, we're really excited to have you today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much. Well, Leo, why don't you tell us a little bit um, from your own words, a little bit about your background and the winning team that you're building at Pure Innovation?
0: Oh, thank you. Um, so I spent about 25 plus years in the communication business, basically, uh, working on the agency and client sides of things. And actually, one of my last you know, real jobs, if you will, uh, was at Vistage, where I headed up brand communications for Vistage Worldwide, who assembles and facilitates peer advisory groups for CEOs and business leaders around the world. And it was during my time there that I really became acquainted with the incredible power uh, of these groups. And so interestingly enough, Private Equity had purchased the firm in late 2012. And in early 2013, I led a brand refresh. And I'm going around the country and I'm asking CEOs, how do you learn? How do you grow? How do you bring new thinking into your organization?" And they would tell me things like, well, I read books, I have a coach, I hire consultants, um, I go to events and conferences, some said they attended executive development programs at places like Harvard and Stanford, mm-hmm. but no one, at least in any unassisted way, had peer advisory groups as even part of their consideration set. And obviously, through the lens I'm looking at at Vistage, I'm seeing how incredibly powerful and effective these groups are. And by the way, Vistage doesn't just run these groups. There's a number of organizations in the U.S. and around the world that lead peer advisory groups for CEOs and business leaders. So when you think of the number of people that could be part of something like this and those who are, I mean, it's just a gap is enormous. So I was reporting out to the board of directors on the rollout. Of the the new brand. And I basically said, um, look, part of what I'm hearing out there when I talk to CEOs leads me to believe that we're trying to sell a Mercedes to someone who doesn't even know what a car is. (laughs) And think about that, right? So I said, what if we actually stepped back and not to write a hardcover brochure effectively about our company and how great we are, all this kind of stuff, but to look at the entire category. Let's look at what everyone's doing out there, you know, here in the US and globally. And really try to put our finger on how and why these peer advisory groups are so effective. And that way we could create a narrative that would give people a real guide for whether this was right for them. So that's where the power of peers came from. I was co-authored with Leon Shapiro, the CEO of Vistage at the time, uh, back in 2016, it was published. And um, since then I've I've written two other books. There's been workshops created from the original content. Obviously it's evolved quite a bit since then. But I think the, the real story about this and why we're here is that it became very evident through all of my research that's been you know, the better part of a decade right now, that what high-performing peer advisory groups do so brilliantly can be applied to high-performing teams right, to two teams in, in organizations to make them higher performing. So this is really a lot of fun work. So I continue to do work with groups to help them you know, fire in all cylinders and squeeze the yeah. most value they can out of their experience, but also work with organizational teams to really help them do a lot of the same thing, but using those principles.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, I, I'm curious, you, you <laughs> talked about how, you know, you found the, the, what, what's what been effective for these peer advisory groups and how they they those same principles can be applied to high performing and, and great teams at companies. What are some of the similarities you've seen between the best kind of winning teams and companies and these very effective peer advi- advisory groups?
0: Yeah. So f- first, let me just suggest, too, that someone might say, well, what's a high-performing group look like? What is, I mean, how do you even know? Sure. What, is, yeah. what does that mean, right? Yeah. So part of what we did was we relied on the organizations to tell us who their highest performing groups were based on you know, any number of things, some used net promoter score, some used sure. member surveys, retention rates, compound annual growth rates for members over a period of years, whatever they used, they identified their top performers, And we got to spend time, whether it was in their group meetings, or being able to interview uh, the members individually. And this is where we learned a great deal, um, that there were two things that these groups had in common. One, they had what we identified as a robust learning achieving cycle. So the idea in social learning theory has been telling us this for decades. We learn better when we learn together. This we mm-hmm. know, right? In fact, Josh Burson did a lovely illustration of this just a few years ago, talking about the fact that, you know, if if you and I, for example, were to read a thousand word article by example, um, let's say, you know, we read the article, well, on average, We're likely to remember about 28 percent of that article for about 24 to 48 hours, and then it's going to plummet from there. If we read it twice, the number goes to 46 percent. However, if both of us or with among a group read that content and started sharing ideas and grappling with the concepts and you know really diving into it a bit, that number goes to 69 percent. So there's that part of it, but it doesn't stop there because groups don't come together just so they can understand content more deeply. They also right. give one another the courage and that confidence and the encouragement to apply things they learn. And even if there's some trial and error, once they start, start achieving something from that. And then and we make sure that they celebrate that win, it drives that continuous learning. Right. And if you think about any great team in sports, and I use sports oftentimes as an example, only because of the visibility of it. We can see, you know, what they do, right, in a way that's not as always easy um, with companies. But think about any organization that you think of as, like, a a winning organization. They're always, you know, winning championships or in the playoffs, they're always there. For any of those teams, they don't – their goal isn't to win the championship, believe it or not. Their goal is that learning-achieving cycle I'm talking about. Their goal is how do we get better tomorrow than we were the day before? And how do we keep getting better over time? How do we have that attention to detail and that constant focus on just learning, sharing, applying, achieving, and continuing to grow? Because if we do that, we will be rewarded with championships. So it's not the goal, it's the reward. And they recognize that. The second factor that was common to high-performing groups and just to group learning in general is that we enjoy what I'll refer to as both intentional learning and collateral learning. So the intentional learning you might get from any passive experience. You could be watching a documentary, reading a book, hearing, hearing, listening to a presentation, whatever it happens to be. And you are taking in that specific content, again, very intentionally. Um, on the other hand, when you're part of a group and you engage in, let's say, in the case of Vistage, for example, they call it different things in other organizations, uh, issue processing, there's a whole procedure, if you will, a whole framework for how you work challenges and opportunities inside that group. This is where people learn from how they learn. So, and so how they, what I mean by that is when you engage in that process very actively versus something more passive, you have to be present. You have to listen better. You have to ask better questions. You have to, you know, not make crazy assumptions, jump to conclusions, have judgment about certain (laughs) things, right? So the more you start building muscles around that, Not only does it make you a better group member, but leaders tend to take those behaviors and model that in their teams. And it becomes very, very powerful, which is why, you know, being part of a group can really help you build muscles around things beyond the whatever content that you come to intentionally. You know, so uh, I would say those two things, again, are not only common to high performing groups, but they translate into, into really great teams as well. That's how they do it.
1: Excellent. Well, where would you get started if you're a leader and you're trying to develop a, a winning team, right? And you're trying to develop um, a really robust learning and achievement cycle with your team. Uh, what What advice do you have for a leader to, to help model that?
0: Well, it's funny, you know, Google, when they did Project Aristotle, and they were looking for what makes for, um, you know, the highest performing teams. Originally, the researchers, by the way, thought that Whoever has the best people wins. Whoever has the most talent, you get the right talent on that team, boy, and you're going to get yeah. yourself a winning team. Again, using the visible metaphor of sports, if you will, or the simile that um, we've seen countless times, right? A more talented team lose to a less talented team. Um, so they, of course, came to the conclusion that it's psychological safety, right? It's what unlocks that talent. That really is what the biggest factor was for high-performing teams. That being said, it still starts with the right people. You know, we're still, I think, very much right to think about the fact that we want to be really selective about who we bring into our organization. But the question is, like, who's that right person for us? I'm pretty sure, and I've certainly made my share of hiring mistakes over the years, right? Where <laughs> I get this great resume and I interview this person and I think they're fantastic. The team interviews them. We love them. They joined the company three months later. We're like, why is this not working? Why is yeah. this going so badly? Um, and it's oftentimes because we didn't really understand and recognize what the it factor was. What makes people successful in this organization, not just anywhere? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gina Auriemma actually came up with a great um, a head coach, at University of Connecticut women's basketball team. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, their success is, is pretty widely, <laughs> widely heralded. Right. One yeah. of was dominant programs in all of college sports. Well, how does he get the right players when you consider all the people that want to come there and play? Well, one of the things for them that became an it factor was being a great teammate. Now, clearly you've got to chin the bar on the ability and the skills and all those kinds of things and the competitiveness right. and all, but being a great teammate ended up being that that separator. Mm. And one of the ways they looked at it was they'd go to high school basketball games and watch kid play. They'd watch clearly what they were doing out on the floor, but it was when they got put on the bench for a couple of minutes, became a moment for them where it's like, mm. he said, there's two kinds of kids. There's one kid throw a towel over her head and just sit there and get ready to be pulled back out into the game and then there's that other kid who's on the edge of her seat yelling out encouragement and instructions to the to the player still on the floor he said that second kid is far more rare than you could ever imagine and yet that's the kind of player and that's maybe the difference between getting recruited to connecticut or not so they were figuring out what is that itch factor that allows someone to thrive in that culture you know Um, they talk about this in the NFL, but I think this is true in in their team. It's one thing to make it to Connecticut. It's another thing to make it in Connecticut in terms of being on their team for four years and really thriving, right? So this is where getting the right people and understanding what that it factor is all about is so important. And and actually one of the things we do in peer innovation is we actually ask the employees, what do you think the it factor is? And presumably if they're there because they're they're decent at their job, they will say, with some pride. Let me tell you what it takes to make it in this company. And they offer usually some incredible insights that CEOs um, that I've talked to who have asked that specific question as part of a a team workshop that um, I provide. Um, It's a a huge learning moment for them. And then you start figuring out, aha, how do we interview for that? How do we assess for that? And by the way, in a tough labor market, do we have the discipline to say no right? To a person (laughs) that doesn't quite have that it factor, but we need someone to fill the spot. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that, I I think it still starts. It starts with doing your very best to get the right people. But then when you get those right people in, now you've got to help them. And this is where this five-factor framework that, you know, we discussed just prior to the show kind of comes into play. Because Mm -hmm. those things I talk about that were so important to high-performing groups and teams don't happen by accident. It starts with the right people, number one, Second, they have to enjoy a level of psychological safety, they have to feel a sense of belonging, they have to believe that they can admit mistakes, ask questions without ramifications, they can contribute ideas, they can challenge the process, even challenge the leader for the right reasons in terms of like the, the, the purpose of the organization and what we're all trying to do here together. Um, and that becomes essential, because otherwise, if they don't have that then you're hiring a lot of really good people. And then you're just putting them in a box. You're not really allowing them to flourish and really deliver and contribute the level of talent that they have to your company. Um, You know, once you do that, then you get people really focused on productivity and really be thinking about how do we get and do the most, you know, among ourselves, you know, together, how do we have great meetings today? How do we, how are we effective in terms of working hybrid or, totally remote or we back in the office, whatever that looks like. But it's a whole new chapter to be written, you know, post COVID about how teams are working together and how they'd be productive. Yeah. Um, next, of course, as I mentioned to you, just two more, which one of course is a culture of accountability, mm-hmm. but not accountability among, uh, you know, or between I should say the leader and the team member or the uh you know, just that whole dynamic or the KPIs, but it's really what they are to one another, that currency that they have showing up like a professional because they don't want to let down their colleague, you know, in many respects and what that looks like. And then, of course, the leader is that servant leader, you know, here to make the team successful, not just to make him or herself successful, that they are a part, of the team, not apart from it. And this was a very key finding, I think, when we looked at groups. And because when you're apart from the team, it can kind of be easy um, to default into a blame culture when things go when things are going poorly, which happens Mm. all the time. We cycle through these things. But when you're all in it together and you can all truly be there for one another, whether it's the good times or the more challenging ones, you know, that is certainly much more effective. And then of course last but not least, that leader in their role serves as a steward of the other four factors they're constantly Mm -hmm. focused on right people right behaviors psychological safety productivity they they create a context for member-to-member accountability they're not the enforcer of it obviously that doesn't (laughs) really make sense but um but they they can play a role in helping facilitate and helping a team find their way uh, to that
1: yeah, I love that. I I really loved how you gave us, you know, how how do you find the right people? You gotta identify that it factor. Um let let's say your organization's done that, right? You feel like you you understand what it takes to be great in your organization and to be part of that team. Um what what common mistakes do you see when it comes to people um in organizations regarding psychological safety? What are what are common mistakes that whether leaders or organizations do maybe unconsciously (laughs) um, that, that really destroy the psychological safety in an organization?
0: Well, you know, well, first of all, what can destroy psychological safety in an organization is, you know, someone asks a question or makes a statement in a meeting and the leader decides to call them out in any kind of a big way, right? You've not only hurt psychological safety for that Mm -hmm. individual, but you've just wrecked it for everyone else in the room who thinks I'm not going to be that person next time. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's number one. I mean, it really does in so many respects, start with a leadership who truly wants it. And by the way, it's in their self-interest to get it because if you don't have information flow coming to you about what's really happening in your company in real time, Good luck with that, you know, because you're never really going to know kind of what's happening, you know, and that problem that could have been, uh, you know, a a tiny problem if you were told about it early on becomes a huge deal three to six months later when finally it surfaces because someone was afraid to tell you. Um, So on one hand, I think it's an employee's responsibility to accept that responsibility for bringing their best and speaking up. And, and all that I think is important. By the same token, leaders have to make it um, inviting for employees to speak their truth. Yeah, And I think that that becomes key. So being vulnerable themselves, creating an yeah. environment where that um, is rewarded, uh, I think is, is hugely helpful and, and important.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. Um, you talked about the importance of being a servant leader and feeling a part of the team, not apart from the team. Um, you know, Do you have any examples of the kind of behaviors you see in these servant leaders who are a part of their team?
0: Um, sure. Um, again, they, you, you typically don't find they blame culture at work. You know, not find one person at one end of the desk and everyone else on the other side and everyone just getting hammered, you know, for results or whatever happens to be. And I think there, during those times, this is where, you know, we can all be the most affable leaders in the whole world when everything's going great. <laughs> where where the rubber meets the road is like, okay, we're going through some challenges right now. How do we come together? Not how do we divide, not how do we blame, not how do we do those things, but how do we come together? Mm-hmm. So... You know, I, I think first and foremost, that's a, just an essential part you know, of, of what has to happen and what being a part yeah. of it looked like. It also asks something of your team. So basically we, we've created a triad around this idea of being a part of the team versus apart from it, which essentially is set up where you've got an individual team member, the team itself as an entity is the second part of the triad and the leader is the third part. The leader has their role. And each member of the team, by the way, they might not be the leader of the team, but so often they are a leader in the team, right? When their expertise is called upon to come forward or when the timing of a project is such where they have to step up and and lead in that regard. So, you know, things like that are are kind of what that looks like from a model perspective. And, you know, it's, I think, an, an important part of of what makes teams successful, both in good and difficult times.
1: Yeah, you also brought up, you know, how productive is the team. And and before, uh, you know, we hopped on, we were chatting about um, work cultures where maybe there's lots of meetings (laughs) and uh, Uh, they're not always always productive. Um, What advice do you have for organizations to ensure that they're structured productively?
0: You know, part of what Pair Innovation is all about and how we use this five-factor framework, it isn't just to talk about, you know, what could be or anything like that. It's actually, and, and by the way, when I go in and work with groups of teams, I don't assess anything. I, came, I come in and give them a framework to have conversations among themselves that are very intentional about what they want, what do they believe they want for themselves, yeah. and what's going to make them effective. Not what's going to make the team down the street effective or the team, you know, somewhere else, but, but for them. And so I think when you can have and invite a conversation that is truly inclusive, where people have a voice and they can share here and come to some understanding about here's now what I know I need to expect of myself. Yeah. Here's what I expect of others. And by the way, it's certainly what, what we're going to expect of any new person that wants to have the privilege of joining this team. Okay. We're going to have clarity around those things. So I think that the big gift of peer innovation and the big gift to any team that's trying to be more productive more accountable have more psychological safety whatever happens to be is to sit down and have some very intentional conversations about these things and you know, I've, I've mentioned to you that you know the it's and it's more than just a tagline it actually is an important tenet of peer innovation which is that the power of we begins with me so it's mm-hmm. kind of accepting that responsibility if you think something isn't productive or meetings aren't going well you know, bring that up, don't wait for someone else to do that, you know, and so, um, you know, I think that's important. There's also an aspect of this, as I mentioned to you, where this is where you have to own how much you matter. Um, I'll share a brief story here. I had a CEO, actually, who was part of his CEO group, and attendance was a little spotty, you know, with their groups over, had been over the past six months or so. And So the group started talking about it. Well, apparently one of the people sitting next to me was one of the culprits. He had to happen to be at the meeting that day, but, and he wasn't loving this conversation because he's feeling. So anyway, the longer the conversation on, the more angry he got. And he was right, sitting right next to me, practically sitting right next to me. It's like this palpable, you know, uh, emotion coming from him. Well, next thing you know, he decides to stand up right next to me and gives a speech to the whole group about, Hey, I'm here when I can be here. I'm the one paying the dues. was on and on and on very eloquent kind of speech but then at the end says you know and when i'm not here I'm i'm the one who loses and he sits down Mm. so now you've got this kind of now what moment right so but he gave me a real gift at the end because what i did was i went to the member just across from him on the table and we'll call him richard and i said would you mind giving me one minute on what's lost when richard can't be here so all of a sudden that member was like oh man Richard brings a whole perspective to our conversations that we don't get from anywhere else. Here's what he uniquely gives us. Then I went to a second person. Then by the time I got to a third, he was actually welling up in tears. Richard was like, couldn't believe this whole thing. Now I'm going back to Richard. And I said, look, I didn't do that to show you up. If I asked that about any person around this table, you all would have responded exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, the bottom line is this is like a jazz ensemble you know, you can't just take away instruments and expect it to sound the same. I said, you know how much you mean as CEO in your company, now you just found out how much you mean in this room. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and everyone has to own that, you know, everyone has to kind of, you kind of think, oh, the meeting will go on, you know, what's the, and it, but it's not gonna be the same meeting without you there. And I think if we take it upon ourselves to really be good contributors for, to our team and uh, be open, uh, with our teammates and with our leaders, I think we've got a good shot at really creating something special.
1: I love that. And I think you've given us some, some wonderful examples to work on. We're unfortunately uh, running out of time. I've got a couple final questions for you. Sure. The first is we, we always like to conclude an episode with kind of giving you the last word. So Leo, um, you know, what's your best advice for building a winning team?
0: Um, I would say to, to A really work hard on psychological safety. And the reason I say that, and it's so funny because so many people think, well, if I work hard on all this psychological safety stuff and just make people all comfy and they can talk about everything and all that, then, hey, we got to get stuff done here. You know, we <laughs> got, we got work to do. we got accountability. we got numbers to hit. Uh, the reality is that the, psycho- the higher the psychologically, psychological safety you have, the easier it's going to be to create a culture of accountability that's healthy because now you're going to feel that openness and that giving each other the benefit of the doubt and that understanding that we're all just here committed to a purpose. And, um, and when you do that, now you've got both of those things. So to have that really high healthy culture of people feeling accountable to themselves and to one another, they have to enjoy psychological safety to be able to do that. So um, I think that's a,
1: that's huge. Lastly, how can people find out more about Pure Innovation and, and uh, connect with you? Sure. Um, connect with me on
0: LinkedIn. Sure. I connect with a lot of people there. Um, my profile, of course, Leo Batari. But also go to leobatari.com uh, where there's literally like just hundreds of articles, videos. I mean, all the free content uh, you would ever want if you're looking for a lot of this um, stuff and um and also if um you want to reach out to me and it's something you're interested in bringing into your organization either through a webinar or to bring it directly into um maybe conducting a workshop or a larger program um you can reach me there
1: excellent and we'll of course include links to your linkedin profile and website um on our on our podcast as well Well, Leo, we really appreciate you joining today, and we're so excited about all the work you're doing to build winning teams across the country. And thank you for sharing that insight with us today.
0: Excellent. Hey, thank you so much.